Coming up on today's episode of the Real Lives podcast. He said I was, he was sentencing me to purposeful incarceration. After that moment, I never dealt with survivor's guilt ever again because I dealt with it very heavily um, before that moment after he died because it was not supposed to be him who died. It was supposed to be me. I was so miserable inside that I made everybody else miserable. There was no laughing. There was no joking. There was no anything around me. It was just misery. That like I, There was just so many things I needed to learn that I didn't even know I needed to learn. Uh, and the plan was I was going to leave there. I was going to go take whatever I got, turn it into heroin, and I was going to have someone sh- show me how to shoot up because by the end of that day, I was not going to be alive anymore. On today's episode, I sit down with the amazing Danielle Burkett. Danielle has had a very, very rough go at at life so far and it's incredible that she's managed to come out the other end of it and make something positive out of her situation um in this episode the third part of the my three-part series on the opioid crisis we talk about so warning about this we talk about drug addiction heroin use we talk about sexual abuse we talk about suicide there's a whole lot of touchy subjects in this one um so just be aware of that before you get into this episode but she was so open and honest and you know some of the stories she's had like she's had and what she's been through and just the fact she's managed to come out of the other side of it is incredible you know we talk about how prison saved her life the day she she wanted to die she got arrested and went to prison and you know we talk about abuse and how because of that she missed out on certain lessons in childhood which she needed in adulthood that of you know that that changed the way she perceived situations and acted in certain situations and you know it's taken her to you know in the past sort of 10 years to really figure out who she is and what she what a calling is in life and you know now she's a qualified social worker who helps drug addicts and helps children and helps people who've suffered with abuse and she's such an amazing person and to turn the situation into such an amazing positive is so great to see but yeah, this this one, again, um, just a disclaimer, there are talks of suicide, sexual abuse, drug addiction, and drug abuse. So if that's not for you, then don't listen. Um, but I would really appreciate anyone who does listen that gives the episode a like, you subscribe, and also you comment your thoughts and whatever you're feeling about this episode, because yeah, it's, a, it's an intense one. But she was so amazing about all of it and yeah i can't wait to share this one with you so you can find danielle in the link down in the description below and again please remember to like subscribe and share the podcast with anyone who may be interested as that helps me to get more and more guests on and i've got a plethora of amazing guests coming on over the next few weeks so look out for those as well so enjoy this episode with danielle burkett danielle thank you so much for coming on the podcast i really appreciate it um this is obviously the finale of the the opioid crisis series that I'm doing, and yeah, I came across your story when I listened to your episode with Mike Brown, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I thought, what better way to end it than with someone who's been at the bottom end of this whole problem, this whole crisis, um, in their own journey? So, if you'd just like to start off by describing who you are and what you do, then that'd be great. Yeah. So thank you for having me. 
Uh, it's a pleasure. Um, I'm Danielle Burkett. I am the founder of Unlikely Journeys. Uh, we, we started in August of 2022. Uh, I've been a peer recovery coach since the end of 2016. And since then, I've gotten my bachelor's degree in addictions counseling and my master's degree in social work. And the nonprofit Unlikely Journeys will be working with youth and their parents as peer recovery coaches. Amazing. So let's let's start from the very, very beginning with you and just sort of describe where this whole journey began because obviously it didn't start it didn't start with unlikely journeys and this amazing thing that you're doing. It started in a much more morbid place. So let's let's start with how you you ended up in this place and what what it was that sort of brought you down this route of addiction and things like that okay um so so i just recently um started a book and i start with the story august 14 2012 uh going to an ex-boyfriend's place and the next day getting arrested and ended up in prison and through prison and what happened i was able to go back and see my life um i've been able to go back and so it started with sexual abuse in in my childhood and then it started like also with so in the 80s mental health wasn't talked about um internet wasn't really a thing then um knowledge about trauma about attachment styles that wasn't really talked about uh wasn't a thing and so my parents did the best they could um but there was internal trauma that happened and then I grew up in a place where I what perfectionism was a thing um, and then when I decided I couldn't be perfect I perfectly screwed everything up so I got in trouble got arrested got as early as 13 years old I was in the system here in the states from 13 until 35 off and on uh, wow and I just had different life like at 15, I remember I wrote in my journal because um, my brother died in 2014 from addiction. But as early as 15, I was writing uh, something about I want to do heroin. Um, I was going to die from from drugs and my brother was going to get get his life together. And he was I saw the hope uh, in our family. And. And then I also started thinking about uh, how to make money by using sex. Um, and I don't know, that was just normal to me. Um, that was a clue of what I felt about myself. I hated myself. And so it just, when I, I got introduced to opiates in 2002, it just, took off from there so when you say you were introduced to opioids in 2002 
What was it about them that st stuck out to you compared to anything else you'd used before? So at the time I just had my oldest son. Uh, I was trying to be a productive member of society. I had a job. I was trying to go to school because I had some experiences and I thought maybe school was my way out. Um, but I didn't do any trauma work or, or that kind of thing. And uh, so opiates, they made everything okay. They made the depression, they made the anxiety, they made the PTSD. Like I could just stay stable when I had them in my system and I could be, I don't want to say happy, but I could portray a sense of well-being that I had a difficult time portraying other times. Yeah, it was, um, it, it was almost like an escapism from what your personality was, essentially. Yeah, and until it got to where it turned on me and I, my body became addicted to the drugs and the tolerance went up and and so yeah that took it probably took two years to get to that because i didn't do it at first every single day um but then as i went along and i got to know more people i maybe i graduated from vicodin to morphine um that kind of thing and and then when i graduated uh to higher levels of opiates it's like all the all the bad stuff, all the, the withdrawal, the tolerance, that kind of stuff showed up more. Mm. So when you were graduating from each sort of level of opioid, what was it that was making you go that a little bit further? Was it just it wasn't working the same way it did the first time? Yeah, and over time, I because of the use, I started... At the time, I didn't equate it to, I was not self-aware. So, I like, what I'm saying now is I didn't even have a clue necessarily at the time. But um, I things started unraveling in my personal life, like with school, um, with my kid. Um, he started being angry at, like, I think two years old. I... I was still, because of the trauma, like hopping from one relationship to another, um, I was still self-harming, I was still going through depression, I was still, um, I had a hard time leaving my house unless it had something to do with drugs or hanging out with the people that did drugs because my anxiety was so high. Um, going to the gas station, going to the store, that stuff was very hard for me. Um, going to college, um, I could do it early on, but then as the drugs kind of took over, that became less and less. And so all these things kind of ha started happening at once, and I started needing 
pills to just make myself be able to get up and not feel sick. Mm. So when you say there that you, you know, you're obviously avoiding these things, these feelings that you were having. Do you, like looking back on that time, do you think you were aware of the fact that you were avoiding them or do you just think you were in full escapism mode and it was almost like you were in autopilot that was saying i need to take this but not really understanding it yourself as to why you were taking it i do think i was in full escape mode there were times that i wondered because i had some early experiences that were kind of um penetrating my mind that i could but then i just needed them to go away because they brought so much shame and it was it's been a hard journey for recovery in all types of of ways like trauma and mental illness to let what had happened come into my brain so in my early 20s i think i took it on myself like i i was not good enough i was not worthy and so um being able to face the fact that these people hurt me in such a way that you would have never expected them to because they were family members was too much for my brain to handle yeah okay and because for, for me as well, I believe that, so with mental health, no matter how big or small, I think mental health is something that if you've got issues, it's a lifetime thing. It's about management. It's not about getting rid of it. And I think when we don't acknowledge that we need to manage it, that's where the spirals happen. Like I myself have had a few, like last year, went through a phase where life got pretty low and it was like to the point where like, you know, suicide was an option. And I'm I'm pretty open about that, and it's it's because I wasn't acknowledging it. I wasn't acknowledging the fact that I had to take steps. I had to make changes, and I feel like it's similar when it comes to people who become addicted to drugs in a way where that their escapism from it. Like in my case, it was the like I just saw a, I just wanted a way out, and but for you, it was your way out was through the drugs because it it switched your brain off in a way. If that makes sense. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I have some suicide attempts in my history. Um, I have dealt with suicidal ideation from the time I was 12 years old until March 11th, 2022. And so I'm very familiar. Like um, I used to. So my bipolar depression, when I would become suicidal, it was much different than when, say, I became suicidal because of my borderline. That was more impulsive um, and was more scary. And I felt like in those moments, um, it was harder to keep myself alive than, say, when I was suicidal for a few weeks and I kept doing techniques to get myself to see that I needed to live one more day. Mm. If that makes sense. I don't know if that does. Yeah, it does. Cause I, like I, I experienced that in a way in terms of like, there was 
an impulsive day just one impulsive day that yes. you and it's hard to explain to people who haven't been through that because you they'll yes. it's, it's something i don't think they'll ever understand because it's like it's not your brain that's thinking your brain is switched off your brain is fully like it's been on overdrive for so long that it's just shut down and believes it's almost like you've been hypnotized and you believe this is the only way for things to get better and then because i remember in my case so i'd basically taken a stupid amount of these pills that had been prescribed and i remember going to sleep and just thinking that was going to be it and i wasn't going to wake up and then the next day waking up and thinking oh my like i had heart palpitate because obviously this it was all in my system having the heart palpitations like sweating profusely but I was thinking I don't know I don't know why I did that that was the first thing I thought was I do not know why I did that yep was that was that yeah, similar for you in in that you thought that way afterwards yeah so um I think I was 17 and my then boyfriend we got in a fight in the car for whatever reason i was sitting in the back seat he was driving and then someone else was in the passenger seat i can't remember the who it was and we got in a fight and i had my pills on me um my mental health pills to help me sleep right and i found myself taking all of them and uh, I didn't go to the hospital that night, um, but a few hours later, um, when I was so tired and groggy and I'd already thrown up, like I had that same experience. Like I, I had, the intensity had gone way down and I could like see the fight more clearly and it made absolutely no sense to me why in that moment that I took the pills that I, like I was willing to die for that silly fight. And yeah, this is, this is a thing that because you're so, but it's, it's, it's not that moment though. I don't think like from my experience, it's not that one moment. It's a buildup of everything where you just implode and you, you have no control over it thereafter. Yeah, and, and I can see that. Like, if I would have been self-aware and would have been living what I call my authentic self, like, if I could hear my authentic self back then, I would have seen, like, that that boyfriend, it, it lasted 20, off and on 20 years. Um, that's a whole another story, but... Uh, um, there was abuse. There was, uh, on both our parts, there was also, like, cheating on both of our parts. There was claiming undying love for each other, but then going the opposite. And so, at the time, I wasn't aware that our actions was telling of how we felt about ourselves individually. Um... So yeah, mm. it is. It and it was a build. It is interesting how like that does affect it though as well in terms of like you know the the extremes of like you know claim that they're claiming the undying love and then also the cheating and stuff. But also then that's playing into 
your mental health because of obviously at points there'll be rejection and then there'll be points where they come back and then but then there'll be a point where he does something that then affects you negatively and it's almost yeah it's like a never-ending cycle of things which were just probably pointing you in that direction of like into addiction basically yes and like so one of the premises i don't know if i used I used that right word right. I have aphasia now because of my stroke. And so sometimes um, the words I say, like I know what I'll mean, I'll, I'll mean but I kind of switch my words up and then I sometimes lose my words. Um, but one of the premises for my, uh, the organization Unlikely Journeys is that there are skills that, should have been learned in childhood from what I've seen of myself, what I've seen with people I've been incarcerated with. Um, I've worked with the, the um, criminal justice population throughout my career. And what I've seen with, even if they, you don't have um, criminal justice involvement, like sometimes what I see with addicts um, and alcoholics and stuff, uh, that there are skills that we didn't learn in childhood that maybe that were really important to learn, like emotional intelligence, um, how to be patient and not impulsive. And so my recovery ever since I ended up in prison has been a long journey of learning these skills that have been so helpful in so many ways and I needed to learn some skills before I could be an effective parent and that like there was just so many things I needed to learn that I didn't even know I needed to learn um until like the last since I had the stroke and I felt like a veil was lifted off my eyes and I was able to see things like more clearly than I'd ever had um Mm their skills that people need to learn yeah i want to get onto that bit but i want to go back a bit to you said you were obviously in and out of prison for a while and i i only went to prison once i was in the criminal justice system from 13 to 35 at at 17 i went to girl school i think for four months and then it took until I was 32 to end up in prison. Okay, sorry. So I mis- I misinterpreted that when you first said it. But when you did end up in prison then, what what was it that landed you in there and what was the sentence you were given? Okay, so, um, so I was a thief. I like to... I, I Part of it was... Um, the obsession, uh, I can see it started long, long ago before I, um, six was the first time I stole a pencil. Um, I've learned since then, uh, the obsession in the mind, uh, and the impulsiveness of it. And when I was doing it in active addiction, towards the end, it was, it was the only thing that made me feel alive. And then it was to get money to fund my drug use. And so August 15th, 2012, I, I woke up that day. I 
drank some coffee, I decided to go to Kohl's, um, and I stole from there, uh, and the plan was I was going to leave there, I was going to go take whatever I got, turn it into heroin, and I was going to have someone sh show me how to shoot up, because by the end of that day, I was not going to be alive anymore. Um, that was my exit plan, um, and so I didn't leave Kohl's. I got arrested, and that was the second time I was arrested that year for theft, and in that county, and so my bond got revoked, and I didn't get out of jail that time, and I went to prison, and the other blessing that I didn't think was a blessing at the time was my grandfather, who almost always paid for a paid attorney, he said no, because the cost of it this time around was going to be way too much. And I'm so grateful that he decided to finally say no to me. And so um, I went to court about a month in and I had written the the prosecutor to because uh, I had always heard from my ex-husband that because he he had been doing time since off and on since he was 18 and he always told me like sitting in jail is worse than going to prison and um, so I wrote the prosecutor and asked them for a plea when I went to court they gave me they offered me four years um, with, at the time, it was time and a half in, in our state. Um, so I would have done two years. And the prosecutor then asked me something about the, the, the first time I stole. And I didn't remember. I didn't, like, I knew it had happened, but I couldn't tell him what I took or anything because I was so high that night. Um, and the judge didn't accept my plea. Um, and he decided there, I had to do a pre-sentence investigation or something like that. And so when I went back, I got four years, but he, he said I was, he was sentencing me to purposeful incarceration. So in the state of Indiana, if you're purposeful incarceration, that means there are certain programs in prison geared towards um, addiction issues. And you, you, <clears throat> you immediately go to those prisons after, in, or not prison, those programs after you leave intake. And so... He said one year suspended, and so I would do three years, but if with being purposeful incarceration after I finished the program, I could modify to leave, and it just worked out where my timing, I finished the program, and shortly after I was able to leave prison. So what? how long was the stint in prison then? Only 13 months. Okay. But during that time in prison, was was that the fi was that the final time you'd taken opioids? Was that you've done by the time you'd left prison? Or 
did you retake again later? So, um, I ended up between prison and, and I don't know, <clears throat> I don't, I didn't touch any drugs, any cigarettes, um, or self-harmed in, in prison. I didn't, um, I got moved to a level two facility when I was supposed to stay at maximum security and if I did those three things and got caught, then I would go back to maximum security. And so I think that is why I, I didn't do them. Um, and so I stayed substance free all those months, all the 13 months. And then after I got home, I got 18 months recovery. And then shortly after I went to the dentist to have some, some, teeth work done and he's they I didn't tell them I was in recovery um because there was a part of me that still uh, like the pain pills that he sent home I took them all that night um and at the time that was the only the one time and then that was in 2013 in 20 I stayed clean or sober again for like six months or so because um, my parole officer had me go to meetings um, and I don't know why I listened like I just that's what I did um, I think I saw hope in the rooms and I wasn't quite sure I really wanted recovery for myself because I was still running from my trauma um, but in prison, I called home one day and, uh, or one night, and I think it was in November of 2012, and they told me, my mom told me that my brother was in the hospital for pancreatitis, and for whatever reason, I hung that phone up, and I felt like I wasn't going to have my brother around much longer, and I was a miserable person pre-prison. Um, I was so miserable inside that I made everybody else miserable. There was no laughing. There was no joking. There was no anything around me. It was just misery. Um, my brother didn't even want to talk to me before that, be, like for several years, um, probably since 20, 2005. Uh, and so... I don't know, like I read The Grief Club like three to five times before I left prison and I used to think I was morbid because I would imagine how I was going to live life without my brother. And so he died in July of 2014 um, and he died from alcoholism. And so... I was different with him. I remember it was in March of 2014 and it was the first time he hugged me, gave me a forehead kiss and told me he loved me like all in the same moment. And there was smiling and there was talking and there was like connection. Uh, and I would ask him about once a month if he wanted to go to a meeting with me. And after he died, 
it was a year and 10 days I kind of stayed in darkness, but I stayed, I used heroin one time, and then I drank maybe the 30 days before July 2015, and then I got into recovery. But I was, it was that day, there was a day in July that I was outside. I can remember how the sky looked. I can remember exactly where I was standing at. And I no longer was afraid of running from, or I was no longer afraid of facing my trauma. And I realized I was dishonoring my brother by continuing the way I was. Mm. That's really interesting that you say it was almost a dishonor to your brother because he, do you think that was because he had died of addiction? Like, do you think if he had died of something else? Do you, so. Yeah, do you think that would have affected before, it differently? No. Uh, well, maybe a little, but. So I found out after he died that once I came home from prison and I started doing, like, I started changing that he was going around telling his friends that he was so proud of me for my recovery. And the night that I used, um, I went to the dentist and I used all those pain pills. We were in the kitchen and I don't know what I said or, or whatever, but he said something about, um, are you high? And I said, yes. And he said, well, Tomorrow, we will just have to try it again. And that was the first time anyone had been like, this is a we thing, and didn't shame me for anything. And so now, in my career, I try to provide that for other people. Yeah, I, th I feel like, because anyone who's going through an addiction or anyone who's got mental health issues is a very, very vulnerable person at that moment in time because even addiction is a mental illness. And I think by alienating someone through, you know, shouting at them or saying, why have you done this? Why have you done, I can't believe you've done this. It isolates them instantly. And it, it, it almost exacerbates the situation. So you have to provide that we in a way and it's it's great that you know someone actually did provide that for you because imagine if no, no one did did like do you think you'd ever be at this point if they if he didn't i don't know because like when i think about my life ever since prison like there were some things that that happened and then they like they kind of built on each other and I didn't know how big those moments were at the time. Um, just like my brother, if I, I wish he was here, right? Like I miss him. But I don't know if I would have gotten recovery if he would have, if he wouldn't, he wouldn't have, if he would have lived. Um, because there was a moment that I called the the ambulance. Um, I think it was May twenty sixth, twenty fourteen. For him because I realized he was out of his mind and he couldn't make the decision um, And so my 
my my kids, my nieces, me and my mom were all on the porch. And I remember my mom telling my oldest son and my oldest niece, um, don't tell anyone why Uncle Jesse is being taken away. And I was sitting on the bench and all of a sudden I stood up and I said something like, our secrets are what's killing my brother and keeping me sick. And so when I got into recovery, that was a, a key moment for me because I decided I can't, I can't keep my secrets. And I have to like, and so talking about my mental illness, talking about my trauma, talking about substance use recovery, that has been my, my main goal sometimes to normalize the conversations because I need a kinder, more compassionate world for when, especially when my oldest decides he wants, he wants this. Mm. There, there's a Japanese principle called Ikigai. I'm not sure if you've heard of it before, but it's essentially the thing that wakes us up in the morning. It's our, it's the thing that keeps us driven and keeps us going. And when I spoke to Neil Jackson, who's created FemBlock, which is a way for people to get off fentanyl patches, um, it like I asked him, was he grateful for having gone what he went through? Like he went through cancer, lost his leg, became addicted to opioids for several years, and it took fourteen months for him to get off. And he said he wouldn't change it for the world because now this is this is his calling. And it's almost like with you as well. Like I, I can imagine what the answer is going to be, but would you? I, I can't imagine you would change any of it because it's allowed you to get to a point now where you're obviously probably the happiest you've ever been, and you've found your passion and your drive. Yeah, no, I wouldn't. Even the sexual abuse in my childhood, the even losing my brother. He, um, this is going to probably sound woo woo. Uh, but in October of 2015, I was in meditation. I was in a sexual survivors abuse group, and we were doing the fourfold way. And whatever lesson we were on, it was a guided meditation that day. And back then, pre-stroke, I never cried in front of anybody. And that day, I cried throughout the meditation and it was like for 18 minutes and my brother and no one can tell me any differently I swear my brother came to me in this blue kind of energy form and he let me know that my the journey I'm on he was happy I accepted it was mine to accept and that moment after that moment, I never dealt with survivor's guilt ever again because I dealt with it very heavily um, before that moment after he died because it was not supposed to be him who died. It was supposed to be me. I, like, I had that written down ever since I was, like, 15 years old that I would be the one to die from drugs and he would be the one to get it together. And like I, I was felt so guilty, and I thought God chose the wrong sibling. And that moment, like 
whatever happened in that space, I've never dealt with it ever since. I've dealt with grief. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the survivor's guilt, like I, this is my journey. I, it, I, accepting it is okay to do. Mm. It does take moments like that, though, sometimes for you to fully accept where you are because sometimes we can even tell ourselves that we've accepted something and we really haven't because deep down, like deep down parts of us that we can't access are still, they're still in that avoidant behavior and they don't want to acknowledge it. And then there'll be one trigger which sends you back down the spiral. And then it's, yeah, there's, there's a, like I had, because like my, dealing with my mental health has been like a pretty hefty journey that's been going on for years and obviously it came to like a pretty steep like you know incline last year and then i was away um in albania last week not the weekend just on the weekend before and i was sat literally it was just i don't know why but i was just sat on this like rock cliff edge on my own there was no like my friend was back somewhere else like on the hike and I was just watching the sunset through the mountain and I was like, I've I've done it. Like I've I've gotten to where I'd wanted to be for so long. And I was like, it's the first time it was the first time in a long, long time that I've re- I really had accepted the like life is fucking good. Life is really, really good. And it was it was crazy because you, you the way you were describing that then of that acceptance moment, it's it resonates a lot because it was literally the one I had like two weeks ago. So it's like, yeah, it's it's crazy that it can take so much for you to get there, but then it's like there's a just a moment where your body it's like a, re- a relaxation, like your body just sort of goes, Oh, thank God, sort of thing. Mm. So And it's so different for everyone. Mm, yeah. It's it's that it's yeah. I've spoken to a few people who've had that that moment and it's always it's always different and it always takes long. Some people it's longer, some t- people it's almost right away. But it's just like I always say to people, like it's a matter of when. And Stephen Fry, I'm not sure if you're aware of who he is, but he's quite famous in the UK. He describes it as the rain's fallen, and it's okay to acknowledge that the rain has fallen. But you have to also realize that the rain will stop at some point. It's just a matter of when. Yep, I like that. Mm. And so. You you obviously you said before that you'd had a stroke as well. Was that a result of the addictions and things that had happened over the previous years, or was it something that completely different that just sort of got into the mix? So the doctor think that it was stress and um, cigarette smoking. So it, probably a. So, in so I got in recovery in 2015, right? And I got about five and a half years. So at the end of 2020, uh, I had a, a boyfriend for about five months that I broke up with. I had um, I my doctor had just prescribed me Adderall. Um. Work was getting ready to 
take off two weeks for Christmas break. School was getting ready to take off for two weeks for Christmas break. I broke up with this boy, this boyfriend in a borderline moment. There, my journey with my trauma and sexual abuse ever since 2015 has been ongoing. Really since 2012. Like I've, my awareness of how it affected me, how it showed up, how it, the memories, um, it has came piecemeal, right? Um, in 2015, when I got in recovery, 2016, I tried to do EMDR trauma therapy. And the first memory uh, that came up was had to do with me and my brother. I was about seven. He was about five. And I had to slam the door shut on it because my I don't think my psyche could have handled it at that time. And so... After that, um, I tried MDR two more times, and I don't know if you know much about it. So it it does um, it's something to do with the reprocessing of memories, uh, and so my therapist would do this, uh, and then I would follow her fingers, and then close my eyes, and so. When I was doing that, following her with my eyes, I would uh, hone in on the seahorse on one of her walls, and that's what I would see every time. So after about the third time, that's like we quit doing that. Um, so that coincided with deciding through step work that I was going to quit dating, quit having sex, quit like all this stuff because I was seeing um, <laughs> there was some twisted stuff going on in my head like um, boyfriend and father figure and like just all kinds of like I couldn't make sense of everything and so I stayed single for three years and then in 2019, I started dating. And then that process was painful. I grew, but I, and I started becoming aware of my triggers. And I, at first, I became aware that I was triggered after the fact. And then at some point, maybe a year or so later, I became aware that I was triggered during the time I was triggered but I couldn't talk about it and so this this these borderline symptoms would show up with these boyfriends um, when I started dating long story short at the end of 2020 I had all this time in this emptiness that was bearing down on me from I'd, I'd always felt it, but I stayed busy with work and school and and stuff, and, and I tried to escape it that way, and I was a horrible house cleaner at that time, and so when we broke up, I decided I was going to use my Adderall incorrectly and get my house in order, and so... I did that for 
a couple months. I never bought off the street. I never um, used it to, like I was still working and stuff and going to school. So I would just do it on the weekends, right? Like it not take very many of it because I still had um, enough to get me through. So like at first, I kept it a secret too. And that was like one of the things I didn't, I was against, right? And so at the time, like I thought I could control it. I thought it was so different because my use pre-prison pre was chaotic. It was like, like I couldn't keep a job and I couldn't like be a productive member of society and I couldn't parent my kids and I couldn't like all the things. Um, and so it was harder for me to identify. Um, and I did that for a few months. And then by August of 2021, I, it stopped. Um, and I started the trauma work. And I think I had the stroke in March of 2022. And at the time, the, my finan finances were a mess because of, of the years. Like, um, I started getting credit cards and I started buying obsessively. Like, I pens and paper and clothes and using my credit cards for Christmas and... And then my kids started going through crisis. My two youngest, um, we were in the hospital for suicide attempts, for drug overdoses, for, um, and I needed to get my 14-year-old in the system because, I, like, he was escalating. And so all this stuff, and I, I think it was just too much. Like, I... I'd gotten myself in such a hole, like I didn't know how to get out. Like I didn't know how to get out professionally. I didn't know how to get another job that paid more, that was like not far from home. And so I think I think it was all that stress that kind of like broke me. Mm. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um. This this one's a bit a bit of a a personal one but so you were saying there like you had to you know you had all the crisis with kids and you know having to put your son into the system and stuff like that and what comes to mind is obviously having had a previous addiction you and then you've gone back to said addiction over time at different points you know there's a there's a compulsion there that's sort of like it just comes up and it's probably so what I, what I can only imagine is it's it's so much that you just do and don't think and do you do you think like do you still have compulsions like that now like at that time were you having those compulsions to do it but was it just a case of you better understood how to fight them or were you not having compulsions anymore so after the stroke I think God, God did something to my brain. Um, I would love to do some research, of like, like exactly like what area of my. I know it was the left side basal ganglia, and my emotions. So 
pre-stroke, the night I fell asleep before the stroke, I was sarcastic. I didn't cry. I used dark humor all the time. Um, I was even sarcastic with my kids. Um, I cussed all the time. I had a hard time. I was trying to practice the silver lining um, in things. But when it came to myself, like I had a really hard time having anything positive to say. Even though I almost got a 4.0 in school and was being successful there, um, it was not ever good enough. Like I could never obtain um, being good enough, right? And, uh, and I was like, I was a great person. Like I, in my career, um, I had a different persona. Like, and then in my personal life, like that was when the frustration, the obsessions, the compulsions, the, um, I didn't know how to parent. Like I was, I was trying, but I, I didn't trust anyone. And so any inform, and that was because I couldn't trust myself. And even though I had all this recovery time and all this kind of learning, like once again, like you have to learn skills before you learn other skills. And so, um, I just, there was some things because of the trauma and the mental illnesses that the lenses I look through were so skewed and so like, I was so fragmented, like I, I couldn't get my personal self and my professional self to integrate. Like I loved who I was professionally. Like I was collaborative. I would, I would ask for help. I would be compassionate and non-judgmental and non-yelling and all these things, all the things that I am now. I could not figure out how you go into a personal life where you're triggered by everything. You're even your own house. And you and you have all this stuff and you're you're so frustrated and you're so depressed and you're so like just not doing everything and um my stroke I look through life in a different lens. Like I'm always positive. Like I have moments of discouragement. Like two weeks ago, I went through a moment of discouragement where, um, with my exercise, like I don't walk right and I'm trying to, but it was really hard that day. And I, I still did it. Um, and that's like, that's different. Like pre-stroke, pre like if I felt something, there was a good chance that I couldn't trust myself to kind of go against what I felt in my personal life. Mm. And so, um, yeah, mm. like it's, it's so different. Yeah. It, it's, it is crazy how a drastic situations can change your outlook and how you, you know how you present yourself in daily life like i, I interviewed a woman i'm gonna say it was over a, over a year ago now but she's one of the most inspirational women i've ever spoken to so her name's jules king 
and she was diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's at 28, 29. And she was wheel- she was wheelchair bound, like, because they didn't know what it was because obviously she was so young, they couldn't medicate it. And now she competes in CrossFit in the adapted divisions. One of... I watched that interview. Oh, really? So, yeah, because um, when I was researching you and what you do, um, that was one of the interviews that I, I stayed on because there's not... People inspire me, but yet, like, it, it takes a lot to inspire me, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so yeah but her story like that was one of the ones yeah like i i would i would say to anyone who has social media to follow her just because if you see her stuff on like when you open instagram it's like that little bit of positive and that little bit of like taking taking the piss out of your own situation for others benefit in a way that isn't like you're not at, like she doesn't crap on herself but she goes she acknowledges like i'm different but it's all right. It's funny. It's fine. And it's amazing to see the way she does it. Yeah. So that kind of sounds like who I am now. Um, because like technically like I've been deemed disabled from, from the government and probably like my, my right hand doesn't work and I walk really funny and my brain is kind of like, there's some, glitches <laughs> and uh so technically like i would be to say i am disabled but i have a hard time viewing myself that way um because i started a nonprofit. uh i finished school like people i did things that people weren't sure I could even do like I could only say two words when I woke up um, and everything got stuck in my brain I couldn't even walk when I first woke up and it's been I had to relearn to drive I had to I had to learn how to use a calendar again I had to remember that I could use a calendar it took me three or four weeks I think to figure out how to get on Facebook it took me like a while to figure out how to get on zoom um and i i had a hard time asking for these things at first because like i knew in my head what i wanted like what i was talking about but i couldn't express express it and um so there was a person who didn't think I would be able to be a social worker after I graduated, like become a licensed social worker. And after I graduated, I decided um, I wasn't going to listen to this person. And I became a licensed social worker in October. And I don't, I don't know, like, and so now I don't talk badly about myself there. Um, even when I don't think like, even when I make mistakes, like I don't say, oh, you're stupid or like, no, like all that stuff has been erased. Um, I don't, I feel like everything could be handed back to me 
if I like if if I really wanted to like have everything back um, because there's been a few times I've been kind of triggered with stuff and I I see it kind of show up a little bit but then I I still go to therapy even though things are good I still go to my um, recovery meetings I still work the 12 steps I still um, I, I ask for help now um, in, in my personal life, uh, me and my kids, like I hold them accountable. Like I, I give them consequences and now it's not sporadic. Now it's like all the time. If, if that is what the, the situation warrants, um, I don't cuss. I, I mean, every now and then I'll say the, the F word used to be my favorite word. <laughs> Um, I, it's still my favorite word, but I don't say it anymore. Um, hardly ever. I don't yell. Um, and that has been, I don't smoke either. I exercise now. Uh, I, I don't know. It, yeah. Yeah. See, I'm a, and I, I'm a big proponent of exercise for getting through, especially with mental health exercise is the biggest one. I, in my opinion, I think it, because you find a lot out, a lot out about yourself because you actually you start spending time alone, like just with you, your thoughts. So you have to really start thinking about situations in a way. Yeah, and it, like self discipline and persistence and endurance. Like pre stroke me for years. Like I smoked so that was always my excuse like i smoke so there's no point in, in doing this exercise and then at some point my lungs lungs started taking more of a hit but i wanted to try zumba probably 2016 2017 but um i was so self-conscious and then i found myself last october in a zumba class and when i can't even do all the 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 moves and I do them kind of like I what's the word modify but I love Zumba yeah it's that's the thing I think is once you allow yourself into that space you realize as well that you know you don't you don't have to be the best at like because this is this is my thing that I've realized in the past year is being bad at something is the best thing and it's the best thing in the world and also how lucky are we that we can pick and choose what we are good and bad at like i yes. t- like taking up new hobbies because this, i think people get content and that's the part of the issue is like people become content whether that be you know someone who is a multi-billionaire ceo who just has run this one business and then now is like i don't know because they don't know how to do anything else they just stick with that or it could be as simple as someone like you know they've been in the same job for 10 years and they don't want to leave because it's the only thing they know it's i think allowing yourself to be bad at things whether that be in sport whether that be in art or whether that be in your job or anything else being bad at something not only challenges you, it teaches you a level of discipline that you have lost as a result of not being bad at things. And also 
teaches you a lot about how resilient you can actually be and how much more resilient you are than what you first believed you are. Yes, I agree. Um, it took me having a stroke to really realize that. Mm. And then obviously you got on to um, the social work side of things and you, you made it through and you became a licensed social worker. And what was it that made you want to go down that path? Was it because you wanted to help others with what you had been through and use your experiences with them? Uh, so, yes, um, I was 11 when I was looking through my mom's psychology book trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And at that time, I was very unaware of, of what was happening in my childhood. Like I couldn't, like my brain had blacked it out, um, which is a common thing for me in my life to some degree. Um, so I was looking in this, this psychology book and it was foreign language to me. And I remember putting it up and I remember thinking I'm going to help people like me. And I don't even know what like me meant at that time. Um, and I remember thinking, but I'm going to have to go through a lot more stuff to do that. And, um, and I don't know why that, that, those things. That memory that are, is so like ingrained in my head. Like I know where I was at in the kitchen. Um, and then I forgot it until it came up. Like after the stroke, I remembered uh, that moment. And ever since I went to prison, even, even in active addiction, I knew I wanted to help people like I would I told you I I stole right and sometimes I stole self-help books and and self-help workbooks and this was how screwed up my thinking was right but I would I would get three copies of the workbooks sometimes and I got three copies because one I needed to use one or do it now so I could try to get myself out of the spot. And then I would need the second one for when I got myself out of the spot and I would need to see what my answers were like then. And then the third one was for my future clients. And so even when I was like out of my mind with drugs, there was still this idea that I need of wanting to help people and so it's it's always been with me um yeah I think obviously what the the way I'm looking at it is is like you do like you like speaking to you you seem like the kind of person who just wants to help others all the time that's that's ingrained within you but what has happened is as a result of the things that you've gone through and the addictions and stuff like that, that's taken away from you. That's taken away from what your philosophies are as a person. And then now that you've gone through it all and you've come out the other end and everything's a lot more positive, you're now in a place where you can actually provide that for people and actually help other people out of similar situations that you've been in and maybe even different ones as well. Yes. Um, that's the hope. No one is showing up 
uh, we have a parent support group and a youth support group, and no one is showing up, but we've only been marketing it for about a month. Um, but the youth in around my county in the state I'm in, they definitely need help. They definitely need someone to come alongside them and say, I've been there. Um, and the parents also, like, they, I, I'm not sure. So, I've learned with my own kids, especially with my 21-year-old, he's the, he's the reason I learned to absolutely love harm reduction. Um, but I've learned you can't control your kids. And for me, the best approach is compassion, non-judgmental, holding them accountable, setting boundaries. And that has come in stages for me um, because I came from a family that my father drank and drank and dro drove. Um, and I used and drove and it was normal um and then having help from family members that went back before i was even born to how that codependency worked out and then that got passed on to me and my brother and it, and so that's been a journey of learning how to be healthy and so I'm hoping I can bring that to the table with, with parents and with youth. Like, I am finding that the more we have social media, the more we are able to talk about mental health issues, about addiction issues, about trauma, about dysfunction, um, the more self-aware the youth are. Um, even if, if they are in the midst of their addiction there's still some self-awareness there that wasn't around when say I was 21 um, and at, when I was 21 I didn't want anything to do with my parents I, I wouldn't even call them to process anything with them or let them know what's going on and for whatever I've done in my family my 21-year-old, he will call me to process things with me at times. Um, he will call to tell me he loves me. Um, I've changed the dynamics of how we inter interact with each other. It's, yeah, it's really interesting. And I think, it's like, like you said, like with getting people into things like that for the support, it's so hard to do because it's, getting people to take that initial step and because everyone feels like they're alone in those situations they don't even as much as we can say you're not alone if you're in that situation yes. you definitely feel alone so you're not going to go because you're like i don't want to be the only one and it's now i think where we're at in a stage of society is we have to start figuring out how do we change that mindset when people are low when people are in these like negative situations make them realize that they are not alone they are not a bad person that there is help there for them and that they can get better if that makes sense yeah and i i think 
years ago when I started trying to normalize things. I think that is one way. Like, I am not afraid to tell my story. Um, the bad parts, like, there are some things that are embarrassing um, to say, I used to be like this, now I'm like this, because I know, I know that people may take it wrong. Or they may only see that that person, but um, I think my hope is that as people start coming through the doors, they will realize how, how non-judgmental I am, how compassionate, how I have literally been through what they're somewhat similar to what they are, or worse, or like there's no judgment. My my view on how you get better, how change happens is, is not a linear progress. Like it's like a spiral and sometimes you go forward and then sometimes for whatever reason you find yourself going backwards. And, and I think that backwards piece is maybe there's a skill or two that need to be worked out that you haven't figured out what, what it is yet to help you kind of stay in that forward movement progress. So, where so with unlikely journeys, where do you want to take? What, what what's the the goal with that over the next few years? So, so right now we are in the phase of. I mean, we have these two support groups, and truthfully, maybe I. So my one of my mentors wrote down a list of how nonprofits should go and I somewhat did it ba somewhat backwards and so right now this year we're focusing on board members and getting a a more rounded board because I only have three board members at the moment um, and they help me get it up and running it's a 501c3 uh, and everything but I I know the big vision like this this nonprofit was downloaded to me in in prison and um, I've been thinking of it for years uh, until 2022 when I had the stroke um, before then I never thought I was good enough or smart enough and I so it's hard to say like I'm in the middle of Thinking about the strategic plan, we're not the place where we are creating the strategic plan as a board, um, but I can tell you what I want the big vision to be, but I don't, I don't, huh? So big vision is we have a building and maybe there are, we help other people in other counties too. Um, but have homework help and maybe tutors. Um, and if the kids come to me and want like any class, like maybe yoga or Buddhism or um, 12 steps or I don't even know, like financial planning or whatever that um, class is called. Dungeons and Dragons, like whatever. <laughs> um we can bring them in and, and uh, the hope is that maybe there'll be financial help to like say 
if a kid wants to go on to school, but they come from a low-income family and they want to go to trade school, but like maybe it's too much. And so maybe help there or they want to do become a yoga teacher or something like that, like help with that and transportation, having our own bus so then we can get the kids to and from the meetings. Uh, yeah, a stage so they can play music or, or uh, cite poetry. Uh, yeah. Basically, basically but, the way you're describing like, it is like a, a place where anyone can go and feel included and no, ma no matter what the dream or how big the dream is, you're there to provide the facilities for them to pursue that. Yeah. Hmm. And also, I don't know if this is, this is kind of from my personal life, but I always envisioned um, a skate park. Yes. On our property. That's for me. <laughs> That's for me. <laughs> but my oldest son... Um, be in a different kind of he loved skateboarding and scootering and i loved watching him um so yeah i don't but then basketball goal and i don't know i just want it to be like a community kind of fun place but yet like hold you accountable and have peer coaches and mentors and like all the things that you need to create this space where they can break out of whatever they were raised in and do something different. Yeah, it's amazing. And then I have one final question that I ask everyone, um, which is how would you like to be remembered? Someone who lives life and... My oldest son says this to people when he tries to describe me. And it, he says, my mom does things even and succeeds or tries things. I don't know how he words it, but um, especially when people tell her she can't. Okay. I love that. So thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Your story is incredible and what you've managed to achieve you know, given your, the cards you were dealt have been against you almost your entire life, what you've achieved is absolutely incredible. So props to you for, you know, putting all this together and starting a nonprofit and turning your life around as well and, you know, providing a life for yourself that you have wanted all this time, I can imagine. Um, but if anyone wants to get in touch with you, if they want to ask you a question or they want to see um, Unlikely Journeys and what that's about. Just tell everyone where they can find all that stuff. Um, so Unlikely Journeys, you can find at www.unlikelyjourneys.org. Um, the business phone number I have, uh, United States, I think it is a yeah. one. 317-760-8624 or you can email me at danielle which is d-a-n-i-e-l-l-e -L -L -E, at unlikelyjourneys.org
And Journeys has an S. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to those who made it to the end of the podcast. I really appreciate you listening to the entire thing. Um, you know, it's such an intense episode, but it's so necessary. Like the podcast is called Real Lives for a reason. And it's to tell the real stories of anyone and everyone, you know, talking about drug addiction and the abuse she went through and all that. That is the definition of real lives. Just talking about everything that is real, everything that has happened and not sugarcoating what life can be for some people. So if you enjoyed that episode, remember to go and follow and support Danielle everywhere you can. You can find Unlikely Journeys in the link in the description below. And also remember to like and subscribe and share the podcast and all those good things. You know, we've got some amazing guests coming on over the next few weeks. So look out for those. Um, And yeah, thanks so much for listening. And I'll see you next Monday for another episode.